Welcome to Songcraft. I'm Scott B. Bomar. And I'm Paul Duncan. Songcraft is the show that brings you in-depth conversations with the creators of great songs, from the ones you know and love to the ones you should know. Be sure to subscribe to the show via iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts, and visit us at songcraftshow.com. You're listening to A Home, recorded by the Dixie Chicks and written by the father-daughter duo of Randy and Maya Sharp, who are joining us for this very special dual guest episode of Songcraft. Randy released his first independent album as a singer-songwriter in 1973, eventually finding chart success as a writer for other artists, including Jennifer Warrens, Marty Robbins, and Glenn Campbell. Thirteen of his songs have reached Billboard's Top 40 Country Chart, a half-dozen of which hit the top ten. He wrote the number ones Why Does It Have to Be Wrong or Right and Tender Live for Restless Heart, as well as a string of hits for Exile, including Nobody's Talkin' and Yet. He continued to write hit songs in the mid to late 1990s, such as You Will for Patti Loveless, The Cheap Seats for Alabama, and Then What for Clay Walker. In 2005, Emmylou Harris won a Grammy for Best Female Country Vocal Performance for Randy's song The Connection. Additionally, his music has been recorded by Dolly Parton, Linda Ronstadt, Reba McIntyre, Kenny Rogers, Kelly Clarkson, Edgar Winter, and Blood, Sweat, and Tears. His most recent album, I Won't Let Go, was released in 2015. Following in her father's footsteps, Maya Sharp has released six albums as a solo artist, earning a reputation as a skilled instrumentalist, singer, and highly respected songwriter's songwriter. Her songs have been recorded by Kathy Matea, Kim Ritchie, Amanda Marshall, Paul Carrick, David Wilcox, Lisa Loeb, Edwin McCain, Trisha Yearwood, Cher, Keb Moe, Art Garfunkel, and Bonnie Raitt, who included three of Maya's songs on her Souls Alike album, including the single I Don't Want Anything to Change. Maya's own version of the song can be found on her most recent release studio album, The Dash Between the Dates. Maya and Randy, welcome to Songcraft. Thank you for having us. You did a little homework there. I guess. Yeah. So well, I guess it. we're done here. We're done. I think. I don't know how we're going to talk. You covered that. everything I was going to talk about. <laughs> well, I want to start with a home. Um, thanks to the Dixie Chicks and their album Home, which sold six million copies. Um, this is probably the best known song that the two of you have collaborated on together. Yes. Um, tell us a little bit about working on that song together, how that process unfolded, how it got to the Dixie Chicks. Well, we wrote that, um, at least for me, with nobody in mind. We were just writing a song. That's right. Uh, yeah, and really didn't know where it, it could possibly land. My publisher um, played it for their producer, or their ex-producer, who then played it for uh, Lloyd Maines, who ended up producing that album. There was a little bit of a hubbub around that album. They weren't. They had... I think they were in a f- uh, a fight with their label, and they they had to figure out a couple things. So it uh, and it, it was in the end produced by Lloyd Maines, and ended up being a more um, a more um, acoustic album, right? Which really served the song. Yeah, had they um, taken a previous pass at it? Had they done a, a different cut that was more of an electric thing, or? No, I think they always did it like that. Yeah, it, from our perspective, it looked like this song that, like Maya mentioned, we really wrote just because we really liked the song. There was nothing yeah. on the radio that that told us that we should be spending our time doing that. But <laughs> right. um, like a lot of the stuff we write, it's you know it's a selfish act. You just find an idea and and produce it as as honest as you can to that feel and that storyline. Yeah. And that's what we had done thinking that yeah, maybe someday, you know, it'll swing around, somebody'll will like this and and it just happened to line up that they were 
pondering this, uh, uh, the Dixie Chicks was, were pondering this front porch approach to the, hmm. their next yeah. record yeah. when no one else was. I mean, if you go yeah. back and listen to what was on the radio, there was really, that was hadn't been approached for a long time, that, yeah. that style. Yeah, yeah. and Scott uh, Sherrod, who I, I think I still have the voicemail, uh, he said that he had played it for the Chicks and that they loved it and that, that they wanted to do it. And that that was the first example of... Um, a situation where I knew I should never try to think of who to pitch a song to because I would have never never thought thought of that song for them. But that's the one that they embraced. They were all over it. Uh, He he heard that, and that's why he's really good at his job. And uh, and now I just stay out of it. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good good word because sometimes when when you go so directly for an artist, and if it doesn't land where you think, where you're trying to make it land... And sometimes that song can be uncuttable, right? After exactly. that point, if yeah. if you like, if it's all, so groomed for that exactly. one specific thing, yeah. yeah. Now, Maya, you recorded a version of A Home on your Fine Upstanding Citizen album from 2005. But there's also a version, which I understand is the original demo, that was included on a 2012 album called Dreams of the San Joaquin. And that record was a real family affair. Yes. It was you, your dad, your mom, Sharon Bays, all singing together on the title track. Mm-hmm. What is special for you about making music with your family? Um, we work really, really cheap. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you can't beat that. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah, that's a big one. Um, I'm so fortunate to come from a family that supported this pretty crazy dream from mm. from from the very start. I mean, I guess you couldn't really say you really need to go out and get a real job. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. that was it's it. hard to sell. Yeah. yeah, yeah, the glass house was pretty thin. There. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, so they were just supportive from the very start. I mean, they bought me instruments. Dad showed me how to use the board, how to mm. always have a recording situation of some kind at at home, which was always huge. But now I think it's it's kind of all of it like if you if you don't have the resources to to be as uh self-sufficient as as you can be now then you're probably going to run into a little bit of trouble so you really set me up to succeed in in a career choice that is kind of rife with challenges (laughs) (laughs) well randy um the songs on the dreams of the san joaquin album share um a similarity of theme and kind of this idea of the experiences of folks in California's central Valley and sort of echoes of that dust bowl grapes of wrath, uh, era kind of thing. Um, and and with that in mind, your, um, first album self-release project, which by the way, I actually have two copies of on Mm, vinyl, um, (laughs) came out in 1973 and there's a, there's a Bakersfield, address on on the label um so i'm putting all this together and i'm guessing that your background kind of comes from this central california san joaquin valley and i'd like to sort of hear where you came from and what sort of music you were absorbing well both of my parents come from oklahoma 
and my mom's family during the Dust Bowl stayed in Oklahoma. My dad's family uh, came out to work the fields in this in the Central Valley, San Joaquin Valley, um, and they were right out of out of John Steinbeck's Grapes of Wrath. I mean, mm. that was that's my family history. Wow. My friend Jack Wesley Ruth, who I co-wrote many of those songs with, right, he had a similar uh, history. His family's from Kansas, and he had people that had come out and had these these this lore that had built up around that time in that era. Yeah. And um, it's a real, it's a sad time, but uh, as the song, Dreams of the San Joaquin, um, there's two stories in that song, and there's two stories in that era. There is this dreamland that was being sold to people in, the, in that area, in Oklahoma, Texas, Kansas, of this magic place to come, and it's just, and there's pictures of, you know, of orange trees. It's and promised right. land. Uh, it's the promised land, yeah. and it really was that beautiful. I mean, it really was a magic place. Yeah. Um, but they would get out here, and by the time many of those families got out, there really was no work left, mm, because right. so many other desperate families had beat, beat them to it. Yeah. So right. they'd show up at the gates of these big ranches to work these fields. There was no work. Yeah. So consequently, they were able to pay less and less and less for that labor because right. there were more and more desperate people coming. Yeah. So we tried, Jack and I spent over a year trying to write that song because mm. we wanted to write both of those stories. They say the Sierra melts with the In Visalia, where where I was, went through junior high and high school, I have real clear memories. It had we had one radio station there, mm. and they played what people asked them to play. So I remember in high school walking across the field, and it went from Buck Owens to Jimi Hendrix. That's cool. Wow. <laughs> I mean, everything was there. Yeah. And I really I credit that. I mean, I I wish there was something like that now, where yeah. everything, everything now is so divided, and everybody goes yeah. to their favorite stuff, and they never hear anything else. Right. When when I was growing up, and in that environment, and it was I think it was generally true around around the country, but in small towns especially, where you only had one choice, you would hear. You know, you'd hear Guy Lombardo, you'd hear um, <laughs> Connie Francis, then you'd hear the Beatles, then you'd hear the Jefferson Airplane, then you'd hear Buck wow. Owens. Yeah. And I, I left that, or I carried with me from that, as many people my age have done, this huge palette of yeah. what is cool. Yeah, yeah right, right. Mm -hmm. yeah. So when uh, when I go in, and Maya's picked up on it too, you can hear it in her, in her music. Right. When it's time to address a topic to write a song about, and it's time to produce that, you don't stop in this tiny little box of your choices of sounds that you can add to complement that the meaning and the message of that song and the emotion. You might want to use an accordion because you know that sounded great on that Mexican folk song that right. you heard when you were a kid. Or you yeah. might want to use a fiddle or you might want to use electric guitars or no electric guitars. Or, right. you know, so Horn we section. had this huge palette, which was right. a great thing. Yeah. yeah. Randy, one of your very first cuts as a songwriter was A Young Girl by Delaney Bramlett. Oh, yeah. um, released in 1973. A young girl in her garden, 
need someone to pose. She knows, he knows, but she knows. She knows, he knows, but she knows. Talk about how that came about. Well, Delaney uh, was a real close friend of Doug Gilmore, who uh, f- essentially found me and brought me and my little family to Los Angeles. He, he's the first guy that got excited about my work as a songwriter and as an artist. And he started peddling me around, and he was from Nashville. Um, so he'd started sending tapes back to Nashville to people he knew like Ray Stevens and Jerry Reed and friends of his. Right. And, uh, and eventually those things, I started to get some cuts through that route as well. Yeah. But Delaney was his buddy and he had managed Delaney and Bonnie for a while for as long as he could stand it. <laughs> and, but they had stayed good buddies and, uh, I met Delaney a couple of times. It was kind of Doug's way of, of, you know, he knew I was a little starstruck by them. Um, sure. So meeting Delaney was a huge deal. Sure. And he became a fan. And Doug huh. was playing him all my stuff. And and interestingly, the stuff of mine he cut didn't sound like him at all. Hmm. It was hmm. very just sort of artsy, odd stuff that I was writing then. Yeah. And uh, we became fast friends. And have, I've uh, worked with him a lot. We've written a lot of songs up until he died a couple of years ago. Yeah. And produced some things with him. And... Um, that's how, that's how it came about. Doug yeah. Gilmore, who who actually goes back to most of my stories of how things happen, Doug is mm. in them. Now, my what were your early musical influences, and at what point did you kind of know, hey, I've inherited this musical gene from the family. I've got it. Well, actually, I started out um, I started out playing uh, uh, saxophone. Huh. I thought I was going to be a saxophone player for a while there. <laughs> And I went to college for that, and a couple years into college, I started writing songs and realized that was the true love. Oh, yeah. Um, it's funny, though, what you're saying about uh, the Delaney experience. Uh, the Bonnie Raitt experience for me was mm. very similar in that I had, been, I had just idolized her for years, yeah. and then for her to hear about me and to want to record my songs, and it was just such a... It was just such a validation. Yeah, yeah. If somebody was to tell you that as a as a kid growing up or first starting to listen to Bonnie Raitt, oh, by the way, one day she'll really love your I songs. I mean, I was <laughs> I was like learning saxophone along to her albums. I oh, would wow. go upstairs and play to my Ricky Lee Jones records yeah. and my yeah. Bonnie Raitt records. And but you were hearing Bonnie Raitt before you were even born. In the <laughs> womb, she was playing. <laughs> nice. Well, her first record, okay. Wait a minute. Let's just clarify. <laughs> Did it first come out in 71? Her first record okay. came out when I came out <laughs> <laughs> debuted at the same time when yeah. i showed up <laughs> dropped. yes yes we dropped at the same time <laughs> and she was just such a kid then too and 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 then to have found our way around to meet and um bonnie cut two uh two of the three songs of mine that she put on her album i never ever Again, I wouldn't, yeah, I (laughs) wouldn't, I am not the one for the job because I would have never thought of those two songs. So, but we're not going to hear about Maya Sharp song plugger anytime soon. It sounds like no, No, Maya Sharp is a, (laughs) well, actually not a a good song plugger. Maya got asked a couple of years ago by Art Garfunkel to produce his, uh, the singer record. Yeah. Uh, And the first song she played him was a song of mine that no one has cut. 
had cut till that time and that I wrote in the mid seventies. Wow. So by the time he cut it, which Maya, pl- you know, she played it for him. <laughs> yeah. First thing she played, cause she had had it kind of in the back of her head all these years. Right. Um, and he cut it. Wow. So, when it's not about her own stuff. Yeah, right. yeah. It's, it's easier to write yeah. someone else's uh, more right. objective. Yes. Well, Maya, there's this old tape of, of the song Ghost that oh you wrote and performed God. when you were a, a five-year-old that's, that's on man, your... You, uh, you really did. Man. It's on your self-titled album from, from 2002, this yes. little clip of this cute five-year-old singing this song that she made up. Ghost, no. So obviously you had a proclivity towards music early on, but I'm curious, you talked about you went to college, you, you playing saxophone. It wasn't until you were a young adult in college that you started actually writing songs. Can you remember the first time that you had created something and you thought, I want to play this for my dad. You know, I want to, I want to bounce this off him and kind of wanted to see what he thinks what was that experience like for you i had started writing and of course the first you know 10 or 20 things were just not uh anything i would share with the world and they will <laughs> right. they will never be ever so <laughs> right. don't even ask we might, we might have found them you know <laughs> i know you probably did but <laughs> When I when I knew that I really wanted to do it seriously, I started asking him if he wanted to write with me. So mm. he was in on a lot of that early yeah. stuff. So that was a probably a, a unique experience. I knew that I I was starting to find these phrases and you know find the chord progressions and the melodies, and yeah. I was starting to get something that felt right. Yeah. But I definitely could use a good other songwriter in the room (laughs) and there he was so we i think solitaire off of my first record was one of the first ones that we wrote together and um it ended up on the first album but we had written it a couple years earlier probably before i got the deal and it all became an album right but we had i mean even prior to to maya jumping into that world i mean we were all uh her and and sharon baser mom uh my wife were we're, we were together a lot, you know, we were close and yeah. my process of songwriting was there at the house in the little uh, house in the back. That's where I worked. So there was a lot of discussion about process. And mm. so Maya was, you know, we were talking about writing songs before she actually even yeah. leaped into, into mm-hmm. doing it. Mm-hmm. And she was bringing her kind of Legitsky jazz bass, <laughs> right. college trained chart reading, uh, chart reading, right. band yeah. orchestrating <laughs> uh, brain to the table. And yeah. I, you know, I kind of came up self-taught playing bars and doing that thing. And, um, it was really exciting and you can go all the way back to like good thing in, uh, uh, solitaire, solitaire. and you can hear where she's putting in these, these jazz moves right. that, that I wouldn't have thought of. Now at that point, kind of even aside from just recognizing her ability, you're somebody, you're a creative person. You're also getting to know kind of the ups and downs of the business and the whole process of trying to make your living as a musician, as a songwriter. What were your feelings about her stepping into that world? 
as a Good protective question. father, seeing that happen. <laughs> well, it's scary, and it was scary then. You know, we had a when we when Maya was at home, we had a just constant up and down of of you know starve and and flourish. I mean, right. it just you never knew what the next year was going to look like. But she knew that. She was a witness to it. And we always managed. We always got through it. Um, and in, in the end of the day, it was it was a good thing to have done. And when she entered, it was still a really good time. And you could do well with, with a couple good, strong records. You know, right. you could yeah. live on that for a while. So um, I was encouraging. And I, and I knew the return. If you could pull it off, I knew mm. that it could be a great way to live your life. And and I knew that she had a, a strong support, and in the dry spells, we were there, and yeah. there's other family and friends, and um, th- it wasn't really any doubt when I heard how talented she was that yeah. she should be encouraged. There's something about getting together with a person in a room to write a song that is, in a way, kind of burying your soul. You know, you're you're throwing out ideas, you, you know, you you don't want the other person to think your idea is silly. Uh, so you, you sort of are that balancing act of, do I just throw this out there and see if it catches or do I I hold back? You know, I would think that a lot of that is already kind of taken care of when you're working with someone in your family, because you're already, there's a comfortability level there, but I would imagine at the same time, there's also, um, a flip side of that, of it can be emotionally charged, Mm -hmm. you know, and sometimes you're not going to react as well to criticism from from your dad or or from your daughter uh, as you might with an acquaintance or a stranger. It's a little scary between us. We don't we don't ever really have to discuss those things. Uh, well, there's <laughs> that's a, okay. Um, there's a shorthand too. I mean, yeah. you know that uh, one eyebrow raise would is says a whole it lot more than all. some stranger yeah. could say in, yeah. in yeah. ten minutes. You know. Yeah. I mean, we know each other. I know from tone. I know from. Um, and Maya knows from me what what's really being said here. Yeah, the thing between us—I don't think we've ever talked about this—is <laughs> that if it's a love song that right. starts to oh, get into awkward, like yeah. kind of a sexy place, like right. I don't know that I want to talk to my dad about this. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> So yeah, right. you just do what you want. I'm not really going to contribute. I don't want to know. I'll play shaker exactly. on that one. Right, exactly. Right. Yeah, that's true. So that's the only. Right. So that's the only the only awkwardness. Aspect of that. Yeah, yeah. Randy, you know, one of the joys of pursuing the life of a songwriter is obviously having the opportunity for your songs to be heard and, and enjoyed and for other people to connect with them. Um, in 1976, you recorded an album for the RCA Equinox label that included your own version of A Young Girl, which we talked about that Delaney had previously recorded, um, as well as a song called I Just Want to Love You. Um, that song was covered by Deanne Horn and became your very first appearance on the Billboard Country Chart. It topped out at number 98. I didn't know that. It topped out at number 98, but it was on the Billboard Country chart. You got me. You got it. Nice. We can pack up. (laughs) So beginning, you know, maybe it was a low ranker, but it's on the charts. And beginning from that point, you start to see um, this string of successes that uh, began in the the early 1980s. Um, And it really kind of ramped up with this pop country and adult contemporary charter called Could It Be Love, recorded by Jennifer Warrens, who, of course, is 
best known for her number one duets, Up Where We Belong with Joe Cocker, and I've mm-hmm. had the time of my life with Bill Medley. Well, he shows me You had already had some some cuts at this point with folks like Jerry Reed, Reba McIntyre, Blood, Sweat, and Tears, and a handful of others. But now you're seeing your songs start to become singles, right. start to start to hit the charts. Um, did that reorient your thinking in any way? Of you had been this singer songwriter guy. Um, at that point, were you more focused on just being an artist, or were you beginning to shift your focus more towards? being a writer for other people to to sing your songs well i did start to shift and but not necessarily because i was having success as a writer but because i kept having these situations as trying to be an artist Mm -hmm. that were just beating me up Hmm. and everybody's got these stories but um i mean i was being groomed for some really big artist deals yeah and um literally the last day walking in to sign the contract it all falls apart oh geez and that went on and on and on i mean that that sort of thing just kept happening but simultaneous this is late 70s early 80s simultaneously uh songs are getting cut by other people and even back as a kid writing songs um i always felt like that i was the songwriter and everything else i did was about helping those songs get heard Hmm. yeah well Randy, I want to talk about um, It's Not All Over, a song that you recorded on a 1992 (laughs) album you did with Karen Brooks. Because I'm not all over loving you So tell me what I ought to do We might have hit an all-time low it's not all over. That song had been recorded in the early 1980s by Marty Robbins, right. who also did another one of your songs, Change of Heart, which he took to just shy of the country top 40. Um, but prior to that, you had written a couple of top 20 country hits, also for Karen as a solo artist, um, New Way Out, and uh, If That's What You're Thinking. And I listened to these songs from this era. These are not songs, though they're they're charting on the country charts. They're not songs that anyone would say are like hardcore traditional country right. music. You know, there's a, there's a broader palette. There's, there's definitely a, a pop element there. Um, what challenges did you face kind of finding success in the country music market as a guy, not only coming from outside Nashville, someone who didn't live in Nashville, but also coming with some different musical ideas. Well, that's uh, ironically, that's what got me the invitation. Um, in the early 80s, when Karen came out with uh, New Way Out, it harkened back to the early 50s, to the Patsy Cline approach to country music, <laughs> right. to that more sophisticated um, uh, thing that was going on in, in the 40s and 50s in country music. And I love that period. So when New Way Out was written, again, not thinking anyone would ever cut it, you know, I threw in a diminished chord. Right. You know, and that yeah. that that in itself made sure that it would not get played on country radio. <laughs> right. At, at least at that period. Yeah. So when it did, a lot of people that that were kind of in the in the power structure there at the time recognized that as a real 
legitimate form of country music mm. that had been neglected. Mm. Yeah. And I got lots of compliments on, on having brought some of that back again. And that invited me in. Warner Brothers uh, uh, Publishing heard it. They signed me to a deal uh, with both the Nashville office and the L.A. office uh, where I would, part of the deal was I'd go back and forth, which I started doing regularly then. Yeah. But I had always written, uh, as we've touched on earlier, for selfishly. I mean, this is an idea that I like. I'm going to write this song. Yeah. And if somebody else likes it, that would be great. Yeah. And my history is that it's taken, you know, when I do get cuts, they're five, ten years since I wrote the song, often. More often than than the other way. In fact, my record had been the connection when... uh, Emmy Lou cut that. It was th- I'd given it to her 13 years before oh, on a cassette wow. that she'd carried in her purse, according wow. to her, wow. um, and had played at each one of her album dates yeah. and didn't get the reaction she wanted until 13 years later, and wow. it wound up on that record. Yeah. And I, not thinking that anybody is going to cut it, you're just writing it for yourself, is really the only way, at least for me, and it sounds like for you, that that's ever worked. Every yeah. time, I mean, uh, you know... I've done the staff writer thing too, where they give you the pitch sheet and Faith Hill's looking for this meets this minus this plus that. (laughs) Okay. Never one time have I nailed the pitch sheet because first of all, they're, they don't really know how to articulate what they're looking for. So even if you give them exactly what's on the page, it's probably not exactly what they want at the end of the day. And then they should change it. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to change up anyway. So if you're, if, if you feel a connection to it, that gives it the best shot of yeah. some other human feeling yeah. a connection. Right. Yeah, and if it's and it's on a human level, then in ten years they will feel they can right. still feel that connection because it's a real thing in that right. song. Right. It's just not answering an invoice from the radio station. Well, turning to 1997, um, your debut album, Hardly Glamour, the opening track, "I Need This to Be Love," includes the line, "My family's name can't save me now." Swept away. So turn the key in the ignition And if our freedom will allow I need this to be Now, in the context of the song, it's not about coming from a musical family, but in a sense, at that time, you were kind of putting yourself out there and making your own statement about who you were and what you were doing, you know, not just riding on your father's career. Um, but at the same time, you're working together in production and collaborating right. on some of the songs. So talk a little bit about the process of making that first record and finding that balance um, of working together with your father, but also kind of stepping out on your own and showing off your own abilities and sensibilities. It's funny, that that line was really meant to show that I'm not typically a rebel, but I'm going to do this, and I know that nothing can save me. Yeah. <laughs> um, I didn't even, I never even associated it with my, my own family. Huh. Well, I, I think that that's a good example of my uh, um, making sure that this was not just um, coming out of having worked with me and that there's this, this family partnership. I mean, that record, she kind of went off with Mark Addison, who co-wrote a lot of that and yeah. co-produced that record. Um, and intentionally, and with everyone encouraging it, 
finding her own voice and finding her own style and mm-hmm. you know pursuing a, and her and mark is also kind of a jazz head i mean he he knows that stuff and they went that way i think had maya tried to come up with that record at home mm-hmm. and and had me playing that other role that wouldn't have been the record at all right. and, and yeah. it wouldn't have been been nearly as as interesting and different well randy by the time maya released her first album you had a whole slew of, of big hits under your belt by that point um in 1987, Restless Heart had a number one single with Why Does It Have to Be Wrong or Right. Well, that's actually uh, one of the very early co-writes. I hadn't co-written before my Warner Brothers deal that I mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. They started flying me into Nashville, and one of the conditions was that I co-write. That was sort of the culture of, of Nashville. Right. right. And uh, I was very resistant because I hadn't done it. I was a little afraid of it. And um, But I said, sure, and they lined me up with a couple people, and most of them didn't go anywhere, but one of them was Donnie Lowry. And he kind of, I think he knew that I would, this was, um, I was a bit of a virgin when it came to this sort of thing. And, right. and, but we started and he let me go, go weird. Cause if you listen to that <laughs> record, that's, that's kind of like a uh, new way out. There was nothing like that record on right. country radio, even on pop radio. And the um, subject matter, I'm sorry. And the subject matter was yes. essentially, yeah. I mean, why, why do I, why, why one person, you know, when I'm feeling, <laughs> all, when about I'm feeling all this? I right, right. love the one you're with. <laughs> exactly. That's, in fact, that, uh, well, I'm not going to say that. Um, yeah, so, I mean, there was nothing about that song that made any sense for country radio. Yeah. But again, kind of stars lining up, uh, Restless Heart was being formed by our friend Tim Dubois, who was also a writer at uh, at the publishing company then. And he was looking for a uh, a Nashville Toto that he was going to put together. Huh. The God, that best makes so players. much sense when you say it like that. Yeah, he he went. He found the best guys, <laughs> yeah. all young, good-looking guys, best right. players. <laughs> he got them together. Went to the writers and the songs that he had known about being in that community for so long. Right, and he put together a new country sound. But uh, Tim heard it to his credit, and the guys liked it. And, yeah. Uh, well, go. and then you followed up that Restless Heart number one with another one called Tender Lie. Um, and that was Restless Heart's sixth consecutive number one single. Yeah, but so the I, formula worked. Yeah, it, it worked. Yeah. Um, but I also really loved the version that Dolly Parton did. Oh, um, I did too. Yeah. On her little Sparrow album in 2001. Say you're gonna come back to me And I believe that it's true You talked about why does it have to be wrong or right being a co-write with Donnie Lowry. Tender Lie, you wrote on your own. Yes. And we've talked a bit about the dynamic of co-writing and kind of what everybody brings to the table. But what, for you, are some of the kind of the pros and cons of collaborating? Well, now that I uh, have a history of doing both, I like having both of those elements in my catalog. Mm. And I can hear the ones I wrote by myself. Of course, I know that I wrote them by myself. But I, I can hear the ones Maya wrote by herself, mm. too, though. Mm. I mean, there is, there's kind of this 
singular vision yeah. perspective wise that as opposed to coming from two different kind of stereo view this is is very focused when a lot of times when a writer will write by themselves and i had a history of, of only writing by myself right and i think in a lot of respects on levels that don't necessarily affect how good the song is at the end but on certain levels of the craft i will be much harder on myself than i will i would never put a co-writer through a lot of that stuff hmm. yeah i've just and a lot of it is just leaving it and coming back and coming back oh, and yeah. coming back yeah. you have to be back. your own sounding board absolutely yeah, yeah i mean and to fix uh, to fix a syllable i mean yeah. just you know because no one's waiting up for it usually um and in the back of my head, I, I kind of suspect I'm writing something that no one will ever cut. So <laughs> it's okay. Take right, all the time. Because yeah. no one knows how long it took you to write the thing. Right, yeah. And so it, they're real different. But I, I wouldn't give up either. There's so many songs that I've co-written that I love. Yeah. Um, but I make myself write alone. The last two things I wrote, I wrote alone. But you know what? I, I noticed the, the difference between the approach of co-writing that the two of you took is Randy, you, you tended to co-write with a lot of other more behind the scenes kind of writers. And Maya, you have written a lot of songs with people who are songwriters, but they're also artists. And you've had, you know, a lot of good luck with people like, you know, Kim Ritchie, Paul Carrick, David Wilcox, Lisa Loeb, um, Kebmo, with whom he wrote the song all the way on his, uh, the reflection album. How far did I fall? All the way, I'm giving it all, babe. Every day, how far will I go? All the way, and I want you to know I'm taking it all the way. All the way. Oh, getting two artists in the same room uh, is not always successful because where you have two people who are kind of more behind the scenes, it's easier to. Um, not necessarily have that sense of the voice of, right. you know, a, of a particular artist. When you are collaborating with another artist, they have a particular artistic voice. You also are an artist. You have a, a particular artistic voice. Um, but you obviously have a knack for kind of pulling that off. Talk a bit about that, that process and how you approach the, uh, the collaboration sort of challenge when it is a, an artist. Well, I think that I got your thing, Dad, about just wanting a vehicle for the song. And it, it's not about if it's me or if it's them. It's just right. if there's something of which I am proud, I want it to find a way into mm. the world, off the hard drive and into the world. Yeah. So I really have no problem if I'm in the room with another artist and they hook onto something and they want to tell a story. I... I'm so happy to be the songwriter in the room that is helping them with yeah. the story. Yeah. I just kind of let it happen. And if they, if they're onto something like, uh, uh, the Kev Mo song all the way, he, he had that. He wanted to tell an intensely positive song. Yeah. I'm, we're taking our love all the way. Right. And I started interjecting things like, well, then what if this kind of dark thing happened? <laughs> <laughs> and he'd be like, no, 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 no. What if it was just, we're we're in right we're, yeah. we're all in i want to take this thing all the way okay yeah. right let's see if we can do that it's like no i'm Kim Mo, i'm the out. positive guy. exactly yeah. <laughs> and i want to be a part of that yeah, you know? yeah it doesn't it doesn't have to be about me and my thing me and my thing can be you know something else well randy you know we talked about 
this idea of artists who are also writers and, and Maya talking about collaborating with those type of folks. Um, I want to talk with you about your work with the band exile um, because that group had had several country hits on Epic records in the mid 1980s before moving over to Arista and you and Tim Dubois produced a couple records on them at Arista, starting with uh, still standing. Um, there were eight of your songs on that album, most notably the hit singles, Nobody's Talking Yet, and There You Go. And you and Sonny Lemaire kind of became the main writers for the band right. in that point. Well, that was that was really Tim Dubois' uh, concept, the same Tim I mentioned earlier with yeah. Restless Heart. But Sonny yeah. was the original co-writer on all that stuff. Yeah. JP and Sonny Lemaire wrote that. Yeah. So Tim said, "Let's let's do it. You know, let's bring them in. Let's let's revitalize this band and this right. uh, brand." And um, and he wanted to do it like it had been done. He said, "The way to do this is let's find somebody, to bring them in, uh, to write with the the record with Sonny." Right. So he thought of me and invited me to to come and meet everybody. We got along great. You know, they were seemed to be impressed with what I had to show them and. Uh, that night, as strangers, Sonny and I went off to my motel room and started writing that record. Wow. And what I really liked about them was they were always a little bit of a bluff as a country band. Right. I mean, right. they were an R&B band. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. In fact, their biggest hits were like uh, Kiss You All Over and right. that Blue-Eyed Soul thing going mm-hmm. on that was yeah. really great. And um, we did some very cool things. You know, we the, yeah. all of those songs are odd. I mean, Yet, which was the number one song... Um, to really break some rules, the whole thing is acoustic guitar, B3, bass, and voice. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, it's just a really odd record, and yeah. it, did, it did well because it was the right thing to put on that concept, right. on that idea right. and that storyline. Well, Maya, in the mid-'90s, the Sharp family was a force to be reckoned with. There was <laughs> a lot to talk about at the dinner table. Um, your dad had three cuts on Reba McIntyre's Read My Mind album, as well as top ten hits by Patti Loveless and Clay Walker. And in the meantime, you're having cuts by legends like Cher, uh, who recorded Don't Come Around Tonight. Yeah, Cher was my first cut, so I really wow. got a taste of that. That's a pretty <laughs> yeah, good first cut. Yeah, not bad. Uh <laughs> Uh, let me see, that was in 1996, and then my first record came out in 97. Uh, Miles Copeland was actually hmm. the conduit to both of those things. He was managing Belinda Carlisle at the time, right. and my co-writer Mark Addison on that song, his publisher, Barbara Vanderland, had pitched it to Belinda Carlisle. Okay. And Miles, even though he didn't think it was right for his artist, heard my voice on the demo and wanted to hear more from me. Yeah. Mm. So he contacted me about maybe doing an artist thing while Barbara Vanderlyn continued to pitch the song, pitch it to Cher's producer, got it cut with Cher. Wow. Uh, this is before I'm signed to anything. Yeah. Um, so it came it really came through Mark. So she she got the song she got the song cut with Cher. Miles um heard everything that I had. I just played him everything. Mm. And he, I mean, to his credit, he is a, he's a little loony, but in a really (laughs) creative way. Like he finds a way to monetize it. He finds a way to follow up on Mm. it. He's not the guy that says, Hey, I want to do this crazy thing. And then he doesn't. Right. Right. So when I signed with him as a writer and an artist in 1997, the first thing that we did together was he um, invited me to go to these castle retreats in France where wow. 
he would invite 24 songwriters to a castle that he owned. Wow. Sure. And, and this is how that happened. He was managing Sting at yeah. the time because yeah. he managed the police for years and right. he managed Sting. I knew if there's a castle, Sting couldn't be far away. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, I think geographically he wasn't far away either because Miles and his hot young wife were on their way to Sting's castle and she says... I'd like a castle. <laughs> and the next thing you know, Miles has bought a castle. Wow. And it's beautiful. And it's in it's in the southwest region of France. And that's all I know because once you're there, you're basically captive. Like if you wanted to escape, you would have no Jeez. idea where to go. You just like wander off into the countryside and die. Like I, <laughs> and this was an honest to God castle from the 1100s. Wow. wow. But... That that entry was pretty pretty cool. I mean, that was something I could never have written or asked for, right. yeah. Because it was so intimidating. It was, you know, the shock value of it. I'm 25 and I'm going to France and I'm writing for Miles, so I go to a lot of them because yeah. I'm his plant. Right. Like mm-hmm. He he puts me in the sessions where he wants to get a piece of that. Yeah. Right. 24 writers on each one. I went eight times. Jeez. And every day there's a new group of three and you write a new song every day and you record every night and you better get it done hmm. because the next day you're going to ha- you're going to have a whole new group of three and you're wow. going to have to record at night. So, and he has managed to get Carol King and the Go-Go's and the Bengals and Howard Jones and Jules Shear and Jane Sibbery and all these people. So wow. I'm just, I'm a wreck the entire <laughs> yeah. time, yeah. Right. but I have to, but you know, I steal myself for the actual session, but in the morning I'm just like, how am I, right. this is what the, right. right? <laughs> but getting through that and, and, and seeing that I can survive that, I, I'm, I have a feeling he meant this. Like if, okay, I'm just going to throw you into the deep end with, you know, sharks, you know, circling around you. And when you survive that, you're probably going to be okay for the album tour I'm going to put you on. Right, right, right. So that was a pretty um, scary but great way to, you know, to kind of start all of this out. Well, Randy, in 2002, you released The Connection, an album that you mentioned earlier, and a fantastic album. Um, that's where your original recording of Dreams of the of the San Joaquin right, was, right. where I, I discovered that song, mm. a song that you know we talked about, but it, it's been covered by Linda Ronstadt, Kenny Rogers, several folks. Um, you know, the title track became that Grammy winning recording for Emmy Lou Harris that she carried around in her purse for, all, right. for all those years. Um, but there's something about hearing you singing your own songs that's particularly engaging for me. I mean, right from that opening track, Some Walls. Some walls are made of stone Sometimes we build our own Some walls will stand for years Some wash away with tears Your voice has a a resonance. You have a, a delivery um, that it's a different experience for me listening to your songs from you um, than listening to them as recorded by other artists. Um, talk about just kind of the difference of hearing another artist sing one of your songs on the radio versus having a guitar in your hand, standing in front of a live audience, and and performing your own music and sort of getting that feedback. 
Well, you get, it's you get another layer of satisfaction when you realize they're also responding to what you can do as a singer and as a performer. Um, but that you know, still that underlying thing is in both both experiences. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is, here's something that I made up out of nothing. Yeah, and you know, and apparently did it well enough that all these people are responding to it. And, yeah, um, and most of the time, not always, but most of the time when somebody at that level records something of my of mine they do a good job and sometimes they do an amazing job yeah um there's been a few that is like what were they thinking you know but (laughs) just a few and of all the people we won't make you name names no 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 no, (laughs) i couldn't but um mostly they you know they get it right and they seem to be moved by the same thing in the song that moved me to write the song and so that i i feel like they're using that to guide them to how they want to present it. Yeah. So I, I get their satisfaction on both of those experiences, but you get the extra bump when you're, um, you're also getting that response for your interpretation of it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think Maya, that, that it's very much a similar experience with listening to you sing your own songs. You know, you've got this cool, distinctive smoky voice, you know, and it's, uh, I think that even with somebody like Bonnie Raitt, who wants to cut your songs like we talked about she is not only responding to the song but the way that you communicate the song you know and and that mm-hmm. makes other artists i think gravitate toward that um and and i don't want to i don't want anything to change the, the bonnie Raitt song we talked about earlier well the maya sharp song that bonnie Raitt recorded that we talked about earlier um is one of those songs where you actually put your own version uh, on your newest record, The Dash Between the Dates. I don't want anything to change I don't want anything to change There's nothing I would And I understand that that record for you was a little bit of a different process than some of your previous work in that you've talked about kind of facing a dry spell in some regards mm-hmm. or, or, or facing kind of a, a writing funk, for lack of a better term, that you had to kind of overcome and, and reemerge to, to bring this album to being. Talk a little bit about that uh, experience and and how you were able to kind of deal with that and and move beyond it to create what's really a great album. Well, thank you for saying that. Um, I had managed uh, for years to be really unaffected by how things were going on the outside. If there was a publishing deal or a record deal or somebody was recording my songs or not, or I was touring or not, it never had really affected my excitement for writing songs. Yeah. And about two years ago, I took a publishing risk. It didn't really work out, and that's what it happens every day. But it, I don't know what it was. It was like an alignment of stars or something, and it didn't, um, or I'm, what's the opposite of stars? No, a misalignment <laughs> of stars, right? <laughs> the stars got all out of joint. Yeah. The turds were aligned. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> The turds aligned, and uh, I really, I kind of let it, I let it affect me, and I Mm. let it kind of, you know, I pouted a little bit. I'm not, I'm not 
proud of it, but I'm just like, meh, I'm not yeah. gonna write, I'm not gonna write any songs. Like, okay, it didn't, it didn't show. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. no, it, nobody, it did not hurt anyone except right. for me. Yeah. But I, I just kind of needed to, I needed to find the passion for it again, and that was something that I had never had to search for yeah. before. But uh, you know, uh, and kind of life imitating art hopefully the first song that i wrote that i wrote alone and phoenix ended right. up being that song that i really needed to be a phoenix right now right. <laughs> please right. rise out of something you know right. so that that actually kind of started me off and okay now i i think i'm back i think i can do this again so there were some older songs and then wrote the rest of it with this kind of new appreciation in, in mind. And yeah. hopefully that that shows. And also a new voice. I was really going for a kind of broader mm. voice, a more yeah. kind of, I'm going to approach this subject from a life experience a little more than just a me and you and our little story. Huh. This is going to be more from what maybe everyone might experience. Mm. I didn't realize how hard that was going to be because it's really easy to be a pretentious ass <laughs> if you think that you know what everybody is, right, right. how everybody would experience right. a subject matter. Yeah. yeah. Well, one of the really cool songs on that record is the first single, Nothing But The Radio, which has this killer like retro <laughs> soul vibe oh, yeah. to it. I've been a thousand days to show you how I feel in a thousand ways. The temperatures a little bit about that song well that one actually had and it had a couple earlier incarnations when it when it was first written it was more of a kind of slinky slow spacious production and uh, uh i took it through two or three versions before my co-producer linda taylor when we when we decided we were going to make this album and this now this version of that song is going to be the final there's no more looking back there's no more trying it again what's going to be the final version so linda having the benefit of not being in the writing room and not being a part of these little you know kind of steps along the way where i had gotten attached to this little line or this little figure right. or the way that i sang this melody she's like yeah no <laughs> we're done with that we're going to take it up 17 clicks <laughs> and i'm going to make this giant track and we're going to throw the kitchen sink at it <laughs> but i have a line in there that says less is more she's like yeah no more is more <laughs> and we're going to do horns and we're going to do strings right and right. i'm going to do castanets right and here's some tubular bells and i was like oh yeah well here's a toy piano <laughs> and here's a whirlister and it was right. like it was like a competition that right. ended up serving the song because it yeah. has, I don't know, 65 right, right. tracks on it or something like that. Wow. And it wanted to be right. that. It wants to be fun. Yeah. Right. It want, and it's the song on the record that it, it's okay to kind of give your brain a, you know, a rest mm -hmm. and, you know, maybe switch on your hips. I can't, yeah. I'm saying that in front of my dad. See, I don't like, <laughs> <laughs> this is See, where it gets uncomfortable. Yeah, we're drifting <laughs> into that uncomfortable territory again. <laughs> Um, Let's just be quiet for a second. <laughs> Let's just marinate. A moment yeah. of silence for the. Um, well, one of the the songs that you guys wrote together is "You Gotta Love Them," which was oh on oh, yeah. on Randy's uh, "I Won't Let Go" album that was released a while back. You gotta love them like 
sisters and brothers, whatever they do and whatever you may wanna do unto others, you gotta love them anyway. You gotta love them anyway. At this point, you guys both have very distinct and separate careers, and really, and you look at your entire body of work separately we actually haven't written that many songs together at least that we in the public have had a chance to hear um and i'm wondering if if that becomes something that's almost more more difficult to find the time to be able to just carve out that space to say hey i'm gonna i'm gonna get together with my dad and and mm-hmm. we're gonna kind of work on something when you do have kind of both very distinct uh, careers happening well it is difficult and um you know especially in periods like this for my touring and and uh, i've taken on a lot of production stuff and so we're busy but we actually have written a lot of songs together um there's a only a few of them have surfaced but yeah we have a pretty good catalog yeah and um but we'll go through periods i mean there'll be there'll be another time here when she's not on the road and and you know my my stuff is clear and we'll get together and we'll write yeah. and because it's yeah. always cool and we always write. I think our uh, our tendency to write outside the lines kind of doubles when we get together. Yeah, so right. a lot of what we write is real quirky and yeah. but really fun and really smart and stuff that we know nobody else would write. You yeah, know, that's, that's yeah. part of the pleasure of it. And like the song you mentioned, you know, which is um, an odd little song, but I I love the verses and the imagery and that. Yeah. And, yeah, it's really um, fun. The whole point of it, you know, basically it's the, uh, you got to put up with people because you just got to, you know, right. that's right. sort of right. the golden rule deal. You just, <laughs> even if they're assholes, you got right. to put up with You got them. no choice. You got no choice. Well, yeah. you, you have now revealed to the Songcraft listenership that you guys have a pile of songs that you've yeah. written together that you're we sitting do. on. So we are, are publicly calling for <laughs> the uh, Randy and Maya Sharp duo album. Yep. And uh, you, you guys know, like the oh, new Judds. Yeah, the new, the new Judds. Yeah, the the father daughter Judds yeah, instead right. of the mother daughter Judds. So uh, the the we, we've put the idea out there yep. to the public. So come on, guys, challenge extended. Yeah, <laughs> in all your free time. Yeah, yeah that's right. <laughs> since you got nothing going yeah. on, right? Well, uh, Maya is uh, currently on the road supporting her new record, The Dash Between the Dates. So if she's coming to your town, you're definitely going to want to check that out. And uh, if you have access to a computer, as you should if you live in America... And if you're listening to this podcast... And you're listening to this podcast, a very good point, then uh, you need to get yourself to iTunes right now. And uh, if you're not familiar with some of these songs we've discussed, download them. Yeah. And speaking of free time, we know you guys are super busy, so we really appreciate you carving out some time to spend with us today. Oh, thank you. It was fun. Yeah, Yeah. it was a lot of fun. Great. Thanks for coming over. Thank you for listening. To find out more about our guests, stream episodes, get a sneak peek at upcoming interviews, or to contact us with your feedback, visit songcraftshow.com. While you're there, sign up for our mailing list so you can stay up to date with everything that's happening in the Songcraft universe. We'd love to stay connected with you, so please like our Facebook page at facebook.com backslash songcraftshow. And if you enjoy what we're doing here at Songcraft, please take a moment to leave us a rating and review on iTunes, which truly helps potential listeners discover these conversations. And we look forward to getting together with you again for the next episode of Songcraft.